First Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. And this is the word of the Lord. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overwhelmed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord God, we do ask that you would indeed speak your word, the word that is good news, the word that says that you have come into the world to save sinners. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would allow us to personally be convicted by that, that like Paul, we can say, when it comes to being a sinner, we are the foremost. Yet, Lord, we know in you there is grace and mercy and forgiveness of sins. We pray that this morning your gospel would fall fresh on our lives, Lord God. We pray for those who do not believe that by your spirit you would come, allow them to come to belief. And we pray for those who have believed for years. Lord, we pray that you would deepen and further our trust in you. Have your way in us. Speak your word and plant it deep. In your name we pray. Amen. We've begun our series in 1 Timothy, Building on Foundations. And as we continue in this series, I want to encourage us that as we are hearing the preaching of God's Word, as we're studying it in our community groups, we are intentionally trying to grow and deepen in our faith. We don't want to be a church that, that, that is stagnant. Or, or stuck, or, or, or feels like we're not growing. We want to be a church that is faithfully in the Lord's Word, in prayer, in community. We want to be a church with, with proper leadership and servanthood and humility. We want to be a church that, that don't neglect certain people, but in all ways recognizing and honoring and loving them. And with all these things in mind, we have perfectly begun this series and we're going to continue in it today. We are building on foundation, but Paul is going to establish and remind us of what that good foundation is again. Some of you who have backgrounds in, in athletics or, or cooking or, or any type of art or, or craft, craftship, you know that 
it, it takes practice to refine. You know that you can't forget the fundamentals or the, or the basics, the rudimentary, the elementary. You need to focus and practice in those things. If you're a musician, you know that scales might be a dread, but as you practice them, you see how they really pour out and integrate and weave into elements of music. You know, as an athlete, it's tiring to go in and out of your stance over and over again and do the first two, three steps over and over again, but you're trying to build speed, you're trying to build uh, consistency, you're trying to build a, a, a muscle memory, a discipline. You know, if you're in, in the restaurant world, that the, that the culinary dexterity takes time to develop and it takes even more time to refine. Whether, whether you're a professional or a peewee, Everyone must practice the fundamentals. And so today, as Paul continues to launch in this letter to Timothy, last week as he, as, he, as he told Timothy to charge certain people to stop teaching false doctrines, today Paul lays out to us the foundations of our doctrine. And he's going he's gonna to really elaborate what the gospel is. And he's going to give his personal testimony. And he's going to tell us these things are important because there is a battle we have to understand that the gospel is how unbelievers come to faith as they give their whole life to Christ, but also the gospel is how believers grow in faith as they give every part of it to Christ. And so you know if you've been a Christian for a long time and you've given your life to the Lord, that is an ongoing process to continually give each nook and cranny, each, each part, each category of your lives to the Lord. And if you're here today and, and, and you have yet to profess that faith because you're not sure what that really means or you're not convicted, I'm glad you're here and I pray that the Lord convicts you. Apostle Paul, we know he is a mature brother in the faith. He doesn't see the gospel as, as being too basic. Again, it's foundational. It's essential. And I don't mean this only in the doctrinal or theological sense, like it's, 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 it's essential in like knowledge, but, but I'm saying that it's essential and it's fundamental to, to living a life of faith. And the Apostle Paul knows this. He's not, he's not telling us the gospel just so that we can write it down and know it intellectually. He's telling us the gospel because the gospel transforms our lives. The gospel isn't just something to be learned, it's, it's something to be practiced. And so when we look at verse 12 in 1 Timothy 1, Paul basically gives us what he's about to unpack. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, that is Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. And so the main point I, I want us to to go home with, the main point I want us to really understand and wrestle with is that the gospel transforms your identity and strengthens you for battle. The gospel transforms our identity and it strengthens us for battle. So what is the gospel? I'm sure you've heard it articulated many times, but we're going to do it again. What is the gospel? Now, in verse 12, Paul lays it out here. I'm sorry, verse 15, he lays it out here. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. In here, he 
tells us the simple gospel in its most, most simplistic, understandable form, that it's Jesus Christ coming into the world to save sinners. But I want to I I unpack this statement in its parts a little bit because I, I, think, I think we'll come to appreciate it in a deeper way. He says that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The reason Paul says this is because he wants to elicit a response. What he's trying to do here is, hey, I'm about to tell you something that's important, and it's something that you should receive and affirm wholeheartedly. What he's trying to do is to, to, to close the separation between the listener. Right? Oftentimes, especially if we're sitting in a service or we're in Bible study or we're engaging someone, we like to just kind of distance ourselves. And many of us might be kind of doing that now internally, quietly. We like to hear, but kind of at a distance. There, there is this subtle way of saying, let me hear it, think about it, judge for myself, and maybe I'll determine I'm going to accept it or not. And sometimes it's very distinct and articulable in that way, and sometimes very subtle. It's a heart posture. But Paul's saying this, what I'm about to tell you right now, it's trustworthy. Don't, don't, don't distance yourself. It's, it's trustworthy. And it's deserving of full acceptance. Come, you don't have to think about it. This is the truth. It's an objective truth. When Paul is saying this, he is, he is almost positioning us, drawing us in to, to affirm and, and almost say Amen whether it's by word of mouth or, or by the way we live our life. Amen means truth or, or so be it. So, so when you say it in response to a statement that is made, what you're, what you're doing is you're affirming its truth and its objectivity, but you are then subjectively saying that this, this objective truth, I'm going to now orbit my life around it. Yes, amen, so let it be in my life too. What, what, you, are, what you are doing when you say amen, what, what, what Paul almost wants us to do as we hear his words deserving of full acceptance is to say, yes, yes, I will live my life according to that reality. Yes, I accept it as truth. Not because I thought about it and deemed it truth, but because it's an objective truth coming from God. I'm saying yes because I said that's true. I want that to now also be true in my life. Paul is saying this, what I'm about to say, the gospel message is, is trustworthy. It's deserving of full acceptance. There, 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 there need not be any hesitation All right, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, right? Paul's saying this is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel. Plain and simple. That, that, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God the Son, who was eternally begotten by the Father... The Bible says he's the heir to all things because all things were created through him, by him, and sustained by him. He is the, the, the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the radiance of his glory. He is, he is the, the visible man-God of the invisible God. He is the king of all ages, as verse 17 says. Immortal, the only true God, the one who deserves all honor and glory forever and ever. This Jesus Christ, this God, the Son, the Son of God, came into this broken world 
the sin-wretched world to save broken people, to save sin-wretched people. He, he didn't come so that people would fear him. He didn't come so that people would worship him. He didn't come so that people would just obey him blindly. Although he's, he, he's deserving of all these things by the very nature of who he is. No, he came to save sinners so that proper fear, genuine worship, and, and loving obedience would flow out from a broken person who was unlovable that now realizes I am called his beloved. Jesus Christ came into the world, was born here. His feet were dusted. He was tired. He had nowhere to lay his head. He suffered and endured. And he's well acquainted with our own sufferings. Not because he wanted to experience something new and heaven was boring. Not because he wanted to assert dominance or power authority. But because he wanted to save sinners. <clears throat> because he wanted to find the lost. Because he wanted to tell them, I love you. That's the gospel. And, and that statement that we just unpacked is trustworthy. Brothers and sisters, friends, it's deserving of full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I love this. The, 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 the statement that comes right after that, Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. And it gets personal. You guys love it when pastors give you their personal sins, right? I struggle with this this week. And you're like, oh, yeah, I knew he was human. I knew, I knew he messed up. Right, Paul here is saying the same thing. He's doing the same thing. We think Paul is this awesome, you know, almost, almost incorruptible, infallible, perfect, you know, record Christian, but he's not. Paul says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the chief of sinners. I am the worst. I am the foremost. So what he's doing is this. He's taking this objective truth of Christ coming into the world to save sinners, and he's saying that I am that sinner. He's saying, amen. He's saying, I am that sinner. I am the worst of sinners. And Christ Jesus came to save me. For Paul, this good news is, is, is personal. This, this good news is demanding a full acceptance. And that's exactly what his heart does. Accepts it fully. When confronted with Christ, Paul sees his sin. He sees himself as he actually is. And then, and then he looks to Christ and, and joyfully desires him. This is the effect of the gospel, brothers and sisters. That when we are confronted with the good news of Christ, that Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom hopefully we can say we are also of the foremost, that, 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 that we see ourselves as we truly are. And, and then we joyfully see the need for Christ as Savior. And he continues, as he makes this personal testimony or this, 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 this profession of faith and shares his testimony, in verse 12, what do he say? He says that, that he thanks Christ for giving him strength 
because he, he was judged faithful and then appointed to service. And, and that's the Paul we know. We know, know him as the, the church planter, the missionary, the preacher, the, the, the epistle writer. And yet Paul says, but that wasn't always me. In verse 13 and 14, he says, I have a past. He says, I was a blasphemer, a, a persecutor, a, an insolent opponent. But I received undeserved mercy. And Jesus' love overflowed for, for me, which now gives me a faith in him and a love that can overflow to, to others. In verse 16, he says the, the purpose of this, the reason for, for him in his blaspheming state, in his, in his uh, persecuting state, in his, in his identity as an insolent opponent, the reason why Christ overflowed in love for him and saved him was for this reason. In verse 16, I received mercy so that I would be a, a display for others to see Jesus' perfect patience. Sharing his perfect, he's sharing his personal testimony. He's saying that I have a past that is pretty shameful. I have a past that, that I'm not quite um, proud of. But, but, but in Christ, I see that now I can be on display as an example of his transforming love. I want to pause there for a little bit and, and, and interact hopefully with our hearts this morning. When we're confronted with the gospel that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, when you hear that proclamation of objective truth, when you, when you hear that and you know that it is demanding a full acceptance, two things ought to happen in your hearts. First, a conviction of your own sin and misery. You see yourself as you truly are apart from Christ. And after seeing that, then you joyfully see your need for Christ to save you. Now, I know that's obvious, but I, I, I know from walking with many of you guys, I know from, from counseling the, the youth group students, I know from talking with many other Christians that although that gospel is so simple, it's hard to, 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 to live in. Because oftentimes you're either stuck in one or the other. When you hear the gospel, you, you just feel guilty and ashamed and heavy and it's almost oppressing. Or when you hear the gospel, you, 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 you hear it and you're like, yeah, that sounds good, but I, I don't feel really intimate with it. You see, you're, you, 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 you want Jesus, but you're not yet really convicted of your sins. In order to, to fully accept what the gospel is trying to say, both needs to happen. You need to see that in your sin and misery, that, that, that even right now in the days to come and even for all eternity, that life is hopeless outside of Christ. You need to see that left to yourself, you are damned in misery. And at the same time, after realizing that, then the gospel says, if you can see that reality, then you turn joyfully to Christ and you say, Jesus, I need you. I want you. Take my whole life. Take every part of my life. Teach me. Correct me. Nurture me. 
Disciple me. Encourage me. Challenge me. I know some of you guys who grew up in the church, maybe here even at 706, maybe when you hear the gospel or when you hear the preacher go passionately, whether it's Sunday morning or at a retreat, you think to yourself, man, here he goes again. They're just trying to guilt trip me. Maybe, maybe all your life when you, when you heard the gospel, whether through preaching or, or Bible study or even when you reflected on it, all you felt was guilt and shame. And, and, and if that's you, friends, I'm sorry. That is not the gospel. That's a part of it. But without the, without the other part of it, it's, it's, it's nothing. Maybe you, you're bitter because you grew up in the church and, and, and what you felt, even though what you heard was, was good, they said it was good news, what you felt was just misery and what you felt was shame, what you felt was unworthiness. And if that was you, whether it was a lack of articulate communication, or whether it was your blind eyes. We know that the Holy Spirit can give faith, and so what I want to say to you is that that is not the gospel. The gospel doesn't tell you to stay in your guilt and misery. The gospel says, yeah, in your past you were a blasphemer, you were an insolent opponent, you were a persecutor. That's for Paul. For you, yeah, in your past, you were X, Y, and Z. But that is not you anymore. You are a new creation. In Christ, you can be a new creation. So turn joyfully. You don't have to stay here. The good news is you don't have to stay in your sin and misery. You can turn joyfully to Christ. Practically, brothers and sisters, some of you guys, you've been here a long time since your days and your youth. And you understand that in terms of the grand scheme and understanding of salvation, you know the gospel message. But I also want to apply it in a very practical way. Some of you, you've grown up here and, 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 and you don't realize that practically you are a new creation. Some of you guys still see yourself as this person's sister or this person's brother or that person's son or that person's kid. You, you still see yourself as the one who messed up in this way in the past. You still see yourself as the one who had this type of reputation. No, the gospel says that was you, but that doesn't have to be you now. That's a challenge to you to stop seeing yourself through that one lens of sin and misery. That past doesn't define you. And that's a challenge for those, perhaps, who are seeing people here, whether they've left this church and come back, still through the same lens of judgment. We are a new creation in Christ. That past is now part of our testimony that has a better ending in Christ. Brothers and sisters, when we hear the gospel, there ought to be a conviction of sin. And then there ought to be a joyful need and desire for Christ. You know, I realized that for Christians who are older in age, not just physically, but maybe even spiritually, that over the years, uh, for some reason, um, the, 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 the emotional and the, the feeling type of sensory awareness starts to shift away. And, 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 and in that process, sometimes 
we can find ourselves ending up in a place where we start to, to no longer feel the conviction of our sins and, and no longer um, um, palpably taste the joy of Christ. And, 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 and if that's you, brothers and sisters, I, I, I want to ask you to pray and ask the Lord to convict you of our sins. I mean, think about your past. Not, not, to, not to lower your self-esteem or bring up guilt and shame, but think about your past. Think about your testimony. Think about who you were, the things you did. Think, think about, think about the, the brokenness and misery. And, and be convicted of, of your need for Christ once more. Paul says that Christ Jesus came to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. And now, Paul is not saying, all right, no one can make this claim, okay? I'm the worst. It's not a competition of who's the worst, right? Sometimes we, when we get together and we talk about our weeks, your week was bad, my week was so bad. And it, it turns into this comparison of misery. But Paul here isn't saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst. And I have the best testimony. And my story trumps everyone's. My, my, my testimony is better than the drug addict who, who miraculously came to Christ. He's not saying that I'm the worst of sinner in, 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 in a way where it's diminishing everyone's testimony. He's saying I'm the worst of sinner out of a personal, deep conviction that says when I'm before the Lord, I personally understand and sense and am aware of my brokenness and I acknowledge that I need you, Jesus. When he says I am the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners, when he says I am the foremost, he is saying I desperately need Christ. And brothers and sisters, that is my prayer personally as well. That the Lord will, will soften my heart so that the so that convictions of sin would be deeper and, 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 and joyous desires for Christ would be greater. And that is my prayer for you all as well. As we move forward, as we build on the foundation, if, if we are still calloused and cold-hearted to this gospel reality, if we can't accept this fully and know that it's trustworthy, then we are building nothing. We're throwing bricks around and it's just piling up. And we can't call that a church. We can't call that a body of believers. It's just the bricks piling up. But if we understand that this gospel message tells you and I that before Christ you were the worst of sinners, yet in Christ you are a new creation who is loved. And even though you're not perfect right now, each and every day I am growing you, challenging you. If we, if we accept that and know that that is deserving of of acceptance and it's trustworthy, then we can start building and say, okay then, what does the rest of my life, how do, what, what should it look like? How can that be applied? Because life is a spiritual battle. In verse 18 through 19, Paul continues. And last week we heard Paul say, Timothy, I urge you to stay in Ephesus and to charge certain peoples not to teach any different doctrines or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogy. But here Paul makes the charge to Timothy clear. He's saying, Timothy, the core of your call, the charge I am giving you as you enter into battle, 
as you enter into ministry, as you continue to grow in your faith, is this, is to wage the good warfare. Ministry is a battle. Life is a battle. Parenting is a battle. Being a student is a battle. Being an employee is a battle. Being a good employer is a battle. Being a good friend is a battle. Being a good brother and sister, especially the ones who are related to you by blood, is a battle. Loving one another is a battle. Life is a battle as a whole, and every part of it we are confronted with battles. And so Paul, as he exhorts Timothy, we are exhorted by God's word to wage the good warfare. And this is why in the beginning, in verse 12, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus who gives me strength. Strength. Why does Paul need strength? To overcome the Roman Empire? No. Why does Paul need strength? Because he's been fasting and he's tired? I don't, maybe not. Well, why does Paul need strength? Because he's old and crepit and he's trying to pen this letter? Why does, why does Paul need strength? So that he can endure another day at the office? Why does he need strength? He needs strength because he knows that life is a battle. He knows that he must wage the good warfare, and he's telling young Timothy, do not rely on your strengths, on your giftings. Do not be crippled by your fears or your inadequacies. Your strength comes from Christ. It is Christ who judged you, faithful and trustworthy. It is Christ who has appointed you to service. What does that mean for you and I? Brothers and sisters, that means that as we battle daily, whatever the frontier or or front lines or or trenches look for you, in, in, in whichever battles you find yourself in, know that Christ gives you strength to operate out of love to overflow in Christ-likeness. Why? Because, don't forget, you were once the worst of sinners. You were once an insolent opponent. You were once a persecutor and a blasphemer and a curser of God. But because Christ loved you, he changed you, transformed you, so that now as you have faith in him, His love would overflow to every area in your life. What need would there be for love, brothers and sisters, if the world was not broken? What need would there be for Christ's love to flow out of us if everything around us was perfectly fine? But just as Christ came into this broken world to save broken people, he then redeems broken people and sends them back out into the broken world to every nook and cranny, to the ends of the world, so that everyone would know that this message is trustworthy, so that everyone would give it full acceptance, so that we would start to see God's redemptive work in our lives and in the people around us. I know it's a battle, parents. 
I'll confess to you that as a, as a young father, I'm, I'm only four years old as a dad, four and a half. My, my fatherly birthday is coming as my oldest turns five next year. I like to say I'm only four and a half in dad years because that's, that's the age of my oldest son. And I got to confess to you, a lot, of, a lot of my days, a lot of, a lot of the things that gives me angst, that, that really boils my blood. It's, 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 it's anxiety that's, that's driven by parenting and, and worrying and concerning. And, and, and I always tell my wife, honey, I, I, want, I want one of our pr- prayers to be to, to raise our children in the fear of the Lord, not in the fear of this world. Parents, I know it's hard. I know it's hard as you wonder who, who your kids are sitting with at lunch and, and who they're playing with at recess and if they're napping at school or, or if their grades are okay or if they feel like they have friends. I, it's endless. It's a battle. It's a battle. Yet Christ gives you strength even to wage the good warfare in that moment, to trust him, to know that all the days of your children's life as they were knitted in your womb have been written in the book of life, that he knows every hair on their head, that, 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 that God is truly in control, that he, he sees them, he hears them, he remembers the covenant and the, and, and the faith you professed, and he, he, he knows them as well. Students, I know it's hard being in school. People who are working, I know it's hard to be in the grind, but, 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 but realize that it is a battle. It makes sense that it's hard. And in that battle, as we cling on to this foundational gospel message, we have to realize, you know what? As easy as it is for me to judge my coworkers, the people that I, I go to school with, as, as easy as it is for me to just write them off, Thank God that I wasn't written off. Thank God that I wasn't judged and casted out. Thank God that I was judged faithful and appointed to service. Brothers and sisters, some of you guys serve in our church, and I know even that is equally as difficult as everything else in the world. Why? Because the broken people out there come in here (laughs) to worship. The broken people out there come into our community groups and our churches, and, and that's a great thing. And so for those who are serving in, in more intimate ways, I know in, in, in a lot of ways it's difficult to love and to be patient. And even to you, as, as Paul exhorts Timothy, I would say to you this morning, remember that Christ Jesus judged you faithful, even though they're so much in your life that you struggle to be faithful with. And, and, and not only did he judge you faithful, but he appointed you to service. And, 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 this, isn't, and, and, and this isn't to give us guilt. It's, it's to really free us in love. It's, it's to say that we have room to grow, that it should be a struggle. We should be wrestling. Our prayer requests should be filled with things like, help me to love this person more. Help me to live, love that person more. Help me to love the Lord more in my workplace. It should be prayers with a context of waging the good warfare. So I want to conclude. As we, as we conclude, I want, I want to conclude and, and, and uh, give us this quote by uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And it's, it's, it's a little lengthy, and I'll, and I'll read for us. He says, he says this about our issue at hand. To make it quite practical, I have a very simple test. After I have explained the way of Christ to somebody, I say, Now, are you ready to say that you are a Christian? And they hesitate. And then I say, What's the matter? Why are you hesitating? 
And so often people say, I don't feel like I'm good enough yet. I don't think I'm ready to say I'm a Christian now. And at once I know that I have been wasting my breath. They are still thinking in terms of themselves. They have to do it. They have to do it. It sounds very modest to say, well, I don't think I'm good enough, but it's a very denial of faith. The very essence of the Christian faith is to say that he is good enough and I am in him. As long as you go on thinking about yourself like that and saying, I'm not good enough, oh, I'm not good enough, you are denying God, you are denying the gospel, you are denying the very essence of the faith, and you will never be happy. You think you're better at times, and then again you will find you are not as good at other times than you thought you were. You will be up and down forever. How can I put it plainly? It doesn't matter if you have almost entered into the depths of hell. It doesn't matter if you are guilty of murder as well as every other vile sin. It does not matter from the standpoint of being justified before God at all. You are no more hopeless than the most moral and respectable person in the world. Now, I wanted to give us this quote because a lot of times we get mixed up and we think the Christian message can be so heavy and oppressive about your guilt and your shame. And in this, in this world of, of self-help, we think, oh, what about my self-esteem? Am I just supposed to pretend like I'm the worst person in the world and walk around with my head, head hanging low? And, and, and we're, no, that's not it. As you see your guilt and your shame, know that it is washed away. Know that you can stand before the God that has created you knowing that you are judged faithful and appointed to service to say, I am unashamed. And as you battle and wage war, wait upon the Lord. Know that God's love for you is not dependent on anything you have done in the past or anything you could do in the future. That if you are hearing the gospel now, it is now the time to trust it and accept it because it is deserving now is the time to be convicted of your sins and to turn to Christ, whether you, you've been a Christian for a long time or you've never believed in him. So let me conclude with this. As Paul tells Timothy in verse 19 through 20, he says basically that some have rejected this truth and swerving from the faith, they have shipwrecked it. And so he says this, a curious line, an eyebrow-raising line. He says, I have handed over to Satan, handed them over to Satan that they may not learn to blaspheme. And what Paul is saying this, that as certain people might devote themselves to false teachings or false doctrines, as certain people uh, deny this objective reality of Christ coming into the world to save sinners, as, as certain people deny the personable responsibility to respond to this. Um, he gives us two people here as a very clear example. He says that these people have shipwrecked their faith. They have swerved and, and crashed and, and they have wreaked havoc for themselves and the people around them. And so Paul basically says that he has taken them out of the community. He has put them in Satan's hand, basically in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, uh, in a, can't find the word. And, and what he's trying to say in the, 
official sense, <laughs> there we go, official sense is that they have been excommunicated or they've been kicked out of the body of the church so that they may learn not to blaspheme. And, and brothers and sisters, this, this, is, this is with a heart of grieving and of love because when you send somebody out of the community of the church because they're unrepentant, this is the hope. The hope is that as they are sent out of the community and as they are alone in wilderness, that the conviction of their sin would become a reality. That they would know that their sins and their guilt and their misery is so serious that not only is it hurting them and the people around them, but they would know, I need Christ and I need the community of Christ. This is a, a, a very hard and, and very grievous, but a, but a love-rich uh, act here that, that, that says you, you, you can't be here. If this, is, if, if this is the way you're going to live. And in, and in that sending out of the community, your, our hope and, and your hope should be that, that in that estate, in that sense of being alone and out of the community, they would see the need for Christ and his body and want to come back. It's a way to really open up their senses to the reality, whether they've been calloused or hardened of heart. And in a practical way, I know some of us, we do that ourselves, don't we? No one needs to tell us to go. We slowly slip out and we cut off the communications. And, and, and many of you guys have left the church for some time and, and have come back. And, and, and the good news still remains the same. That no matter what your past identity or your shames might have been, that, that, that in Christ you are forgiven and you are loved. And my prayer again this morning is that as we reflect on this, we would be convicted of our sins and that we would joyfully turn to Christ as our Savior. So let's respond in, in a time of prayer.